And we're getting official right now. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bible. My assignment this morning is to cover verses 13 of chapter 8 to chapter 9, verse 5. I probably have said before, and those of you that know me, uh, to me, the book of Hebrews is uh, probably my favorite book, or act the close. But I think Hebrews is the most important book of the Bible to know. Uh, because I think it's sort of the knot book that ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And if you're a strictly a New Testament reader, uh, the book of Hebrews is basically um, dull to you. Um, you're, you're blinded um, unless you know your Old Testament. Uh, the book of Hebrews will mean much more to you when you know your Old Testament, particularly the Pentateuch, the first five books, because there's so many references to uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, but elsewhere as well. So, we're going to begin with verse number 13. I have the English Standard Version I'm going to be quoting. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I'm going to stop right there before I read the following verses because I think there's sort of a, a new turn that's taken in the next uh, verses. Uh, I want you to notice in that verse the verb becoming and growing, both ongoing, continuous. Something that was occurring at the time and was continuing to progress. What was? Something was being obsoleted and also, something is growing old. Basically, two adjectives, obsolete and old, uh, are describing the same uh, vanishing of the first covenant, the new covenant. In general, if uh, you were to pick uh, a theme, and I try to do this as we're journeying through the New Testament uh, in our preaching series, uh, next epistle will be Second Timothy. We'll be coming up to Hebrews in a few more weeks. Um, thinking of what would be the central theme, and I think we probably have mentioned it. Some of the different teachers have probably mentioned it. But as I was preparing myself for this, I thought of one verse to me kind of summarizes what I think the author of Hebrews is trying to get at. And that would be chapter 3 in verse 1, where it says, Consider, who can finish it? Consider the apostle and high priest of our, you could say, Christian era of this new age of the economies of God's time. And I think that's what the book of Hebrews is about. Considering the apostle and the high priest. An apostle means what? A sent one. A sent one. Who would it be the primary apostle of the Old Testament? Who? Okay, can you give me a verse that would indicate that? No, I can't. Or a... Why would Moses be considered an apostle in the context that I'm using this as? Well, he was sent. And he was the one that established the first covenant. So we, we see the same thing repeated in Jesus. Right. Moses is in, the, is in the backside of the wilderness, the burning bush. Go to my people. So Moses is commissioned by the Lord, sent by him to go back to Egypt and deliver the children of Israel out of bondage. Mm. And then also to... <coughs> to initiate and inaugurate the first covenant. 
There were other covenants that preceded it, promissory covenants, but this is now going to be a formal documentary type covenant that's going to formalize the unity of the people of God, Israel, in this covenantal relationship with, with God. And Moses was the mediator, mediating for God to Israel this covenant. So he's the sent one. Consider the apostle the sent one and the high priest of our profession. The high priest, of course, in the Old Testament was who? The primary Old Testament high priest is Aaron. That's pretty obvious. That was his function. And in both cases, God chose Moses. Remember how he preserved his life when he was born and protected uh, in the, uh, the ark that was placed in the Nile River and the way he was raised and so on and so forth. Um, similar to the Lord Jesus, the way he, his, his early childhood was preserved from the danger of, uh, of the king as well. Uh, so wasn't uh, um, Moses in the Old Testament. So anyway, I could go on and on and talk a lot about these similarities. And of course... So Moses is sent and appointed by the Lord just like Aaron, the same way God selected the tribe of Levi and from the tribe of Levi there were three um, families within the tribe. Can anybody mention, know their names? The, the Gershonites, the Merorites, the, uh, and the Kohathites. The Kohathites was the priestly family. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, it indicates to us that God had placed this honor on Aaron to be the merciful and faithful high priest to Israel in the Old Testament. So in both cases, there's a selection, particular selection by God of these two individuals, Apostle Moses, High Priest Aaron, now, the New Testament writer is saying, let us consider a greater apostle and a greater high priest. Hebrews begins with, a better than angels, Jesus is. <coughs> to which of the angels did he say at any time? What did he, well, how's that verse continue? Thou art my son. Thou art my son, no? Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Um, He's superior to angels in his nature. He's better than them. He's better than Moses in that he initiates another and a better covenant. And he's better than Aaron in that he's a greater, higher, holier, perfect high priest in the heavenlies. The book of Hebrews, we have a better priesthood or another priesthood. We have another mountain, a mountain that's not, that's not touched. We have another... Uh, way into the holiest. We have another city. Here we have no abiding city. We look for one to come. We have another and a better example in Hebrews chapter 12 after going through all the list of all these mighty men and women of faith. It's finalized by saying, let us now look unto the author and the finisher of our faith. He's another and the greatest of them all. We have another sacrifice. We have another day. We have another country. And on and on, there's another, another, a better, a better, a newer, etc., etc. The first 
as we have in our verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first, the first one obsolete or obsoleting. The first is old in comparison to the new when the author was writing. It's also said by the author in this book that it's weaker, that it's unprofitable in comparison to what has arrived. It's unprofitable. It was temporary. And the most important thing about it, it was typological. It was all types and shadows. And this is something that the author is wanting to convey to these Hebrew Christians who obviously had an affinity for their Judaism of the past, beginning with Moses, with the whole sacrificial system, and with the temple particularly, which is, was their mainstay, that was center stage for them. And now they're being informed that it's, it's old, it's, the system is weaker, it's unprofitable, it's temporary, and it was all typological, because we have all these greater things now, better things, other things, newer things. Jesus himself said that a greater than Jonah is here, right? Mm -hmm. Jonah preached. They repented, but a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of Sheba came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but a, Jesus' own words, a greater than Solomon is here. He describes himself as being greater than the Sabbath. And then most importantly, he says in the 23rd chapter that he's greater than the temple. So that's sort of like a little background, backdrop for our understanding of the book of Hebrews, which is so, so important. It can't be stressed enough. And um, it doesn't surprise me, I think, that in a lot of superficial evangelicalism that the book of Hebrews almost goes unnoticed. Um, um, because I don't, Because it does require... A, a, a rather in-depth knowledge of the Old Testament. We have to know something about the sacrificial system. We need to know the function of what a high priest did, how he served in the, in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, and what his role was to the people of God. And that's why the book of Hebrews uh, is so vital to our understanding and appreciation of where we have come. Although we have not evolved out of Judaism, that's why I think sometimes we think that this is sort of like not our territory, but it really is because we are a part of the Judeo-Christian heritage. It's important that we understand the roots. I like to think of the Old Testament as sort of the, the bud in the New Testament as the blossom. So if you don't understand something about the bud era, you won't appreciate so much the blossom era because they are very much organically connected to one another. But it's progressive not regressive. you have a question? Uh, yes. In verse 13, where it says, A new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now, that's the covenant, uh, the Old Testament covenant uh, with the nations. Is that correct? Yeah. The nation of Israel. Now, when it said, is, isn't there further understanding in this chapter or in this book, Hebrews, of the, that things are annulled? For example, uh, either traditions or uh, things that were done uh, as, as, I can't think of a word, but uh, <clears throat> that they were annulled. That they voided, were annulled. maybe voided. 
Yeah. Would that be an appropriate word? Voided? Yeah, superseded would be a better word. Superseded, I'm going to get to that. That's a very important word there. Yeah. Ready to pass away. What's that? Ready to pass away. Passing away. Yeah, that's, that's key right here. Yeah. So we have in verse 13 the fading of the old covenant. Brother Seth you know, ended on verse 12, and, uh, and, and I thought maybe he should have covered a little more of the new covenant, but he didn't properly so, so that it would lead into what or allow me at least to talk more about the kind of conclusion that he brings exactly. to uh, the Jeremiah prophecy that's being fulfilled in that era. Like the Sabbath, for example, is what I'm referring to, or driving to. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll get to that. Um, and, and there are some other hints in the Bible about the, uh, the termination, if I can call it, of the tabernacle, <laughs> temple, um, uh, viability. Um, for instance, when Jesus was crucified, um, what was one of the events that took place that has a reference to the temple? Not, uh, this is a woman question. Well, then I'm not going to answer it. I thought you were a woman, but I could be wrong. He does that. Go ahead. The curtain was torn in two. From where to where? The temple curtain, which is extremely important. That would be the... By the way, here is our... This is the tabernacle, so we can't... This would be the curtain into the whole... Oh, let me get my bearings here. Yes, this would be the entrance into the holy place. And I believe it's in reference to not this curtain, but the other curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. And that was torn. It's, it's believed that the length of that would be something like 20 feet high in the temple. Now, we're not talking about the tabernacle structure here. When Jesus was crucified, we know that the temple replaced the tabernacle. Tabernacle was mobile and it was transitory, whereas the temple was a permanent building. And so the, the curtain is torn from the top. Top. Now, who, who can reach 20 feet high? If it was torn from the bottom, people might say, oh, somebody did it. You know, you started from there in the seam and it ripped upwards. But if that's at the top, that's a signal from God about the termination of an old system. I understand about three inches thick. Even six. About the length from the tip of your thumb to the end of your baby finger is about the thickness of that curtain. So it's not, it's not humanly possible that that could have been ripped by a person, but rather a divine act itself. So there is a hint right there. It's almost like sticking a, a knife into the heart of Judaism in a way by that curtain being written, uh, torn rather. It, it's, a, it's a very strong uh, hint that Judaism is now going to be forfeited and the baton's going to be passed on to another dimension, so to speak, of things that will take place. The Melchizedek priesthood has eclipsed the ironic one forever. The true tabernacle has moved from earth to heaven. The sacrificial system is discontinued and invalidated. The Judaism has been supplanted by Christianity. And the first covenant is passé. The second one is in vogue. Again, that makes the Jews in the Jewish religion past or post-70 AD to the current as being a, um, 
what's the word I want to say? It's discredited. It has no no value because they've missed they've missed the substance for the shadow. They haven't seen the fulfillment, so they're looking back still at what that was pointing forward to, rather than to itself. Could we say that it was really emphasized when in 70 A.D. When everything was destroyed. Wow. You would have think that they would have said, hey, we've got to look elsewhere. Um, God has another, has another plan. You know, this one isn't working out. God has preserved His people. All of His promises have been kept. Uh, why then is this temple being destroyed? In a destruction unlike any other one, the worst of them all, uh, obliterated. Huh? I mean, all Jerusalem. That's true. All burnt down. Uh, and uh, Jesus said that not one stone would be left upon another. And all that comes to pass, of course, in A.D. 70. But let's dwell a little bit more because this is very important at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So, the New Testament teaches us that it, the New Testament era has replaced or superseded Old Testament Judaism, Old Testament theology, Old Testament typology has been superseded by something that the book of Hebrews brings out the anothers, the betters and the newer all those expressions are strong indicators that that's gone this is what's come and the Hebrew Christians needed to embrace that so that they could see that they weren't losing anything. They were gaining everything. Because for them to see... Now, of course, we, we understand that the book of Hebrews had to be written before 70 A.D. Because it wouldn't have been sensible for this book to have been written after the temple was already destroyed when the author is spending all kinds of time talking about the temple uh, structure and the priesthood and the sacrificial system if it was destroyed. So it was all pre-70 AD. So this had this was a real stinger at the time before 70 AD because the temple's still standing. And yet the author seems to be looking at it from a negative standpoint, seems to be putting Judaism out of existence or out of business so to speak and then bringing in this new uh, Christianity we call it Christianity but of course that's a term that we have given to the new and better age that the Old Testament was pointing forward to Um, even we call ourselves Christians Uh, it's really others call us Christians we are really Jesus' disciples we're Christ followers (coughs) And the world wants to see us as Christians. That's all right. Christ-like ones. But Christ-like ones have been given instructions how we are to gather ourselves together in a church capacity where the two or three are gathered together in my name. We see it, it's no longer like Jesus hints to the woman at Samaria who says that in this place is where we ought to worship. And you say it's in Jerusalem and there was this competition between the Samaritans and the Jews over which was the right place. Jesus says, hold on. The hour is coming now is when neither in Jerusalem or here will they worship, but the true worshipers will worship this 
Father in spirit and in truth. And elsewhere, Jesus says, where the two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So those are now the worship centers. It's not centralized in one location, but it's centered in all of these various places where the two or three come together. And we really are what? A temple anyway. We're individual temples, but we together corporately form a temple as well. Okay. So, how does the New Testament replace or supersede the Old Testament? Some have objected to the term replacement theology. And I understand that. And and those who have the strongest opposition to that say, well, you're saying there's no future for the Jews. That the church is now the new Israel of God and there's no future for Israel in the future. Well, that's partly true, but not altogether true. So, the word replacement has a slightly inaccurate connotation to it that has to be uh, substituted with a better word. And I think that better word is either supersessionism, that is, the Old Testament has been superseded by something better than what it was, or the New Testament is fulfillment theology, fulfillment era. So we don't, we could use the word, we believe in fulfillment theology rather than replacement theology. But let me explain why I think replacement too has some value in as being a good term to, to describe how Christianity has replaced. Now this has to do with um, verse 13 about what's becoming obsoleted and vanishing away. And why and how are these things obsoleting and vanishing? The Old Testament national Israel has been replaced by the holy nation. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy... Who's, who are they? That's us. That's you. That's me. That's the people of God of the New Testament are described as being the holy nation. So the Israel of Jerusalem and in, 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 in the country of Israel, they are no longer the Israel of God. They are cut out of the olive tree. We have been brought into it this is a new era. This is a new, a, a new occurrence. The axe has been laid to the root. John the Baptist indicated that. Now we come into the olive tree and those who were natural branches are extracted from the olive tree. You had your hand up. Yeah, I don't know if this is a rabbit trail that you want to go down or not. Or just, but I just wanted to ask if the indwelling of the Holy Spirit has a lot to do with this transition into the new covenant. And I will be referring to that. Let me go through this list. It's a little long, but um, I think it's really important that we understand this. Again, replacement. Melchizedek has replaced Aaron. And not just temporarily, but forever. Because I I want to show you and prove to you that the, 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 the beliefs that many evangelicals have that the Jews are back in their land... That, a land that was promised to them that they never had fulfilled in the past. And the temple is expected to be rebuilt. And there's plans that are, are, have been undergoing for years about a rebuilding of the temple and a replacement of all of those furniture pieces like the Ark of the Covenant and like the Table of Showbread. All of those, I've actually been in the, what is, I believe it's called the Bible, it's a temple institute in Jerusalem where they actually have life-size pieces of these furnitures that they really believe that these pieces that are being 
very carefully and expensively put together are going to be put in a temple that's going to be built on what is called the Holy Mount in Jerusalem. So this isn't fiction, this is reality. How could that be? Melchizedek has replaced forever Aaron. How can you have an Aaronic priesthood functioning, offering up sacrifices on earth when we have a heavenly forever Melchizedek who never dies? So there is a replacement there, and I'll move on. Christ, the giver of the Holy Spirit, has replaced Moses, the lawgiver. Moses gave the law, but Christ came full of grace and truth, and we have received grace upon grace from the Lord. So Christ has replaced Moses. The new covenant, verse 13, has replaced the old covenant, or the second replaced the first. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete, and that may throw us off a little bit, what is becoming seems to be uh, transitional. It's a, a term that indicates uh, ongoingness. And when we read in the book of Acts, and I think the book of Acts is a sample for us of how you could say Judaism, like the old man, you take the grave cloths off, off, the grave cloths of Judaism were beginning to start to fall off, and the new man of Christianity was beginning to come into full vision. So you have in the book of Acts, in the, what we call a transitional period, things that you still see traces of Judaism being transferred over into the post-Pentecost period. Um, and that's because of a time element that's involved here. So the New Testament doesn't replace the Old Testament like immediately. It's not as if the high priest was handed the pink slip and said, you're out of business now. We've got another high priest. We've got a better high priest. We have a Melchizedek high priest. Don't you see that rip in the temple, in the curtain, when you go inside as a high priest? That's a signal from God that this temple and all of the, all, all of the paraphernalia and everything connected with it is no longer valid. That's not how the New Testament is introduced to, to replace the Old Testament. It's transitional. Even Paul... In Acts chapter 23, when he's with the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was composed of who? Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And who was above all of them? The high priest. Paul, apparently at that time, didn't know, recognize who the high priest was, and he called him a what? Whitewashed yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a, an old Pat LeCair, you know. Uh, <laughs> I see traces of Paul and Pat, uh, for sure. But what a, what a keen expression to use. And then, you know, he got rebuked for it. And he says, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. And how does he apologize? He actually uses the Scriptures. What is it? Remember what he says? He says, as the Scripture says, you would not. What? Speak, speak against the elder. Before. Yeah, you would not rebuke or... I forget the word that's used exactly there. That You would not... Um, sort of criticize uh, your ruler, your, your leader. So Paul is taking sort of an Old Testament proverbial type of expression in saying, I still recognize you, you know, uh, as having an official capacity with Judaism. Maybe like the way we might address a Catholic priest, 
we may not necessarily believe in we don't of course that he has a father role in a, in a Roman Catholic system or over humanity or of, of some sort no but from his standpoint just like Paul from their standpoint would say oh you are a rule of the people I apologize for having been rude and in, in said an you know off the cuff remark a slang remark you had your hand up it just kind of reminds me of uh, David wouldn't uh, wouldn't attack the Lord's anointed I think it's a similar um, uh, relationship. That's right. And so, anyway, you do find in the book of Acts, and I can't go through all of the different examples, but I'm sure you um, have noticed that, and I just want to emphasize how that Mm -hmm. this obsolete and growing old is just not an immediate substitution like that. That vehicle is not, you know, taken off the road and and, and thrown into the, uh, the garbage heap for scrap metal but rather it's just fading. It's being substituted. It's being, meta, in a sense, it's being um, meta, what's the word I want to use there? Metamorphosized. Metamorphosizing, that's a good word. It's blooming into the new age, the new Christian age. Go ahead. What a dispensational uh, uh somewhat bypass these very, in my opinion, declarative, simple texts uh, by saying that the church age, um, this new covenant age, is a, is a um, parenthesis period of time for the church and God will deal with the Jews at another time still under the same standards of the old Mosaic law. Yeah. Again, I, I don't know way, how you can read. This is why the book of Hebrews is important from that standpoint, too, because it totally obliterates that possibility. And as I read on, you'll see what I'm talking about. The temple of believers has replaced ethnic Jews as the people of God. Excuse me. I, I skipped the, uh, a line here. It should read like this. The, bo- the temple of believers has replaced the physical temple of the past of any of the future. Mm-hmm. The temple of believers has replaced the physical temple or mm-hmm. temples of the past or any that want to be built in the future. Mm-hmm. How could you build another temple when we are said to be the temple of the living God? This is climactic. Okay? Mm-hmm. This is the culmination of what the Old Testament was foreshadowing. You with me, sister, or against me? Good. Okay. Um, who had the hand? Oh, Mark. So the, the visible has been replaced by the invisible. The, the, the physical nation of Israel has been superseded by the, the spiritual kingdom of Christ. Even Jesus said, you know, if, if my disciples, uh, if my kingdom was of this world, my, my followers would fight. There you go. Exactly. And you'll see you're hit, hitting on a lot of things that I'm going to be referring to here. Listen to this. The true Jew who circumcised in the heart by the Spirit, which is what every believer in this room is, has had, a circumcision not by hands, but by Christ. Colossians chapter 2 tells us. That's right. Imagine that. You've been circumcised by Christ. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. Our high priest has circumcised us. So, the true Jew, circumcised in heart by the Spirit, has replaced ethnic Jews as the people of God. And I could give you various references to that, like Philippians 3.3. 3, it says um, that we are the true worshipers who worship God in spirit. And that's Holy Spirit 
in in Philippians chapter three, so verse three. Go ahead, brother. So, so what do you do then with the uh, passage in Romans eleven that says, "Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers: a partial a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved." Good question. <laughs> What's important here is to understand the difference between conversion of people rather than a reversion to Judaism. You follow me? Rather than thinking of it as because these Jews will be saved in the future, we're talking about individual people. We're talking about an ethnic body of individuals, okay? Whether corporately or individually, and that can be debated. That We're talking about conversion there. We're not talking... We're not making that equal to a reversion back to Judaism. So if there's Jews going to be converted at the end of time before Christ's second coming, what does that mean? That we have to wait for a temple to be reconstructed? That's ludicrous in light of the book of Hebrews in the thrust of the whole New Testament. Let me read on and you'll see where I'm going with all of this and more. The seating of Christ on David's throne has now replaced any future idea of him sitting on a physical throne here upon the earth in some uh, vague future day that is being proposed by some. The Jerusalem above that is free has replaced the Jerusalem that is below and Paul says in Galatians 4 which is in bondage with her children. Some look at the Jews and the rabbis when they go to the Western Wall and they're like this. And I don't want to ridicule that. I believe that they're sincere. But I don't respect their theology. This is vanity. This is falseness. This is erroneous uh, worship. Okay? Um, the Zion above has replaced the Zion on the earth. Hebrews 12.22 we have not come to a mountain that can be touched. That's what Israel did. It was a physical mountain. Remember, if somebody touched it, they would be thrust through. The mountain that we have come to is Mount Zion, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Jesus, uh, hold on. The once for all sacrifice has replaced forever all other sacrifices, past or future. Jesus, the greatest servant of Yahweh, has replaced the inferior servant Israel. And that's Matthew chapter 2 where we were reading uh, this past week about the birth of Jesus and when Jesus was brought down to Egypt. Why Egypt? Why did Jesus go? Why, Why was there a dream given to Joseph to take the child, bring him to Egypt so that Jesus could retrace the steps of ancient Israel, God's servant people who were called out of Egypt to go to the promised land. Well, that's what Jesus was taken so that he could come and fulfill the type as being the true servant of Yahweh. You with me or against me? Amen. I'm with you too then. Good. Um, The Sabbath rest in Christ has replaced the need for present or future Sabbath day keeping. Christ is our Sabbath. He is my rest. What peace we have because of Him. And so therefore, Sabbath keeping is no longer, again, valid for New Testament Christianity. The Jewish feasts have been forever replaced by Jesus and His work. Colossians 2 talks about the new moons and holy days and so on. 
in eating of certain foods which are all to perish with the using. He's basically saying, again, it's obsolete. It's passé. Why go back to the shadow when you've got the substance? It doesn't have a whole lot of meaning for us in the 21st century because we have not come out of Judaism. But we've got to, to get the most out of the Bible, don't we, brother? We have to put ourselves back into the era in which it was written, to whom it was written, for the reason that it was written to them, and then we'll see the profitability of it. I was just going to say, though, for me, coming out of the Church of Rome, Hebrews was huge in understanding Christ fulfilling everything in the Old Testament and being my... I mean, like, I no longer was under the law, but was under grace. Thank you, and and that's true about Roman Catholicism, which it has been said that Roman Catholicism is a um, mongrel system composed of of paganism, Judaism, and Christianity. Mm -hmm. The three of them are sort of knotted together, and that's basically what you got in Roman Catholicism. So you'll see a lot of the the features of Judaism, Old Testament Judaism, the way the priest will function in his serving the Mass, the way he would you know, sprinkle the holy water and uh, the, the various chalice and all of these different pieces of uh, tools and, and, and whatever, the, the, the table, the altar, and so on. There's a lot of Judaistic uh, overtones to a lot of the ways in which they, they will function. Um, the, the Passover celebration has been forever replaced by Jesus' judgment death on the cross. The children of faith have replaced the children of the flesh. Romans 9, they which are the children of the flesh, these aren't the children of God, but the children of the promise accounted for the seed. So I don't look at a. I love the Jewish people. I love the Italian people. I love all. We should love all people, right? There is no difference. It tells us in the book. All have sinned. They all need the gospel. But the nice thing with a Jew is that if you know someone who knows something about Judaism in, in their Old Testament, you know you have a handle with them. You can say, "Can you see that these things were only temporary?" That. God said to Abraham, to Abraham that he was going to be a father of many nations. And how then could you be the exclusive people of God when God in the Old Testament is foreshadowing a time when all nations would be connected with Abraham and be able to call him Father Abraham? Anyway, uh, circumcision without hands has replaced circumcision with hands. I mentioned that. The types and shadows have replaced been replaced by the substance. Colossians chapter 2. The children of the devil, Jewish unbelievers, have been replaced by the spiritual seed of Abraham. Worship is no longer a sanctified particular location. It has been replaced by a spiritual worship in an undesignated place or places. The old National Israel of God has been replaced by the new Israel of God. Galatians 6 verse 5. The natural children of Abraham have been replaced by the spiritual children of Abraham. Galatians 3.29. So, the word replacement, is that erroneous? Why not? Melchizedek has replaced... Circumcision has been replaced by the circumcision without hand... Uh, New temple, on and on and on. All that has been replaced. 
that's been removed and it's been substituted by something else. But the better way to explain it is that it has morphed into this rather than it has been replaced. Because that's still, that's a still, those are events of the past that have now reached their time of service. That's why another key word in, in Hebrews chapter 9 is the time of a reformation. And Todd will take that up next week. Has come a time. That's a great reform, the real reformation. Reformation. Mm-hmm. So I was having this conversation with my brother-in-law the other night, and he was concerned that the uh, what happened to the uh, Ten Commandments. He says, "What about the Ten Commandments?" I said, "Well, they've been superseded. They, 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 the law was given, but the, what Christ came, came and did was, if anything, he said he made them more demanding than the old, than the old Testament law was." Mm-hmm. I give a couple of examples, like the uh, "Thou shalt not commit adultery." Mm-hmm. But, the, but the fact is, the Ten Commandments also required Sabbath worship, and that's not in the New Testament. Yeah, so yeah, that, that certainly relates to, and that has to do with our hermeneutical approach to the scriptures. And we believe our theology—if we get our theology right—then our hermeneutics will also uh, mesh with that nicely. It, it will it will coordinate properly. Now let's move on from the uh, hopefully any questions on the obsolete and the growing uh, old and the ready to vanish. Go ahead, Brother Seth. Would you say the the moral law, the Ten Commandments, specifically are included in that obsolete? So what part of the the moral part of the commandments? Like the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Well, I mean, thou shalt not commit adultery is 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 a timeless truth. You know, you shall not. You know. Covet your neighbor's goods. We, we can't say that the, that the Ten Commandments are not valid. They are certainly repeated in the new. Jesus made them more demanding when he said, "Even if you look upon a woman." That's right. You know, it's more. Uh, it's worse because the, the Old Testament Jews thought that you know the actual act of adultery was the biggest sin. They didn't even concern about the, what they thought. The bar has been raised. So, yeah. Okay. And for instance, in Romans 8, 4, it says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So the true law keepers, because we're not lawless, you know, we're not transgressors. We are, we are not under the law, but our life in the spirit conforms us to the image of Christ, who is a perfect keeper of the law, I guess would be one way of putting it. Go ahead, stop, Todd. Thank you, but one. Nicodemus came to Jesus and Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot enter or see the kingdom of heaven. The, the, the new covenant reality of the kingdom can't be seen without that new birth. And, and when he says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Amen. You see this replacement and this transition to a spiritual kingdom. Of course, we get hammered for spiritualizing the Bible by saying these things, but it's the reality of sound interpretation of the new. <laughs> Amen. And um, this is why I, I, I want to just... In, I guess, like, Jonathan, you, you, go ahead, brother. Sorry, I missed you. I'm blind at times. I'm going to more make a... I hear you. I'm going to make a comment of... You know, there were promises to the covenant. The Jews were, you know, in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. And it was, you know... Explain to them that this new covenant was coming. It seems like there wasn't a longing for it. Like there was such animosity mm. Mm. to this new covenant coming in, even though they were promised it. 
Like, I, I just wonder what the mindset was. Like, they understood there was a Messiah coming. They rejected Jesus, the Messiah. Did they did they not tie the two together? Or were they, were they not happy with how this new covenant was getting flushed out? It wasn't what they expected. It just, you know, they were they were told it was coming. They were promised yeah. it. And it just seemed like there wasn't this longing for it. I mean, Abraham longed for it. David did. There's a few, seemed like choice, you know, people in the Old Testament that, that actually grasped it. But it just seems like overall... But there was just this animosity to it, and they, they just totally rejected it, even though they were promised. Yeah, good good point. I, I, I Go ahead. By Jeremiah's time, the average Jew had no idea what the old covenant was anyway. Mm. Plus, remember, there was judicial hardness going on as well. Blindness and pot has happened to Israel mm. until the fullness of time has mm. come in. So God pur- purposely hardened the hearts of Israel mm. nationally so that he could show mercy unto all. Can you imagine if Israel had welcomed the Messiah has come, the mm. true light is now shining in darkness, and they embraced him and accepted him, that would leave the Gentiles out of, out of the equation. Mm. But Jesus says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must also bring in. Mm. So his death was not just for that nation, but for the nations of the world, so that out of every kindred tongue, people, and nation would be a people for his name. Now, in chapter 9, verse 1, I've got to get, at least get to this because I get like six minutes or so. Um, here's the tabernacle. There's the structure. And I think this, this erudite group of people here, you know how this all works. We got this is the outer court. This was the entrance into it. This, this was the widest gate, which is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Whosoever will may come. Beautiful picture. Then we have, of course, the uh, brazen altar, which was the largest piece of furniture, by the way, in the, in the, in the uh, tabernacle. Then we have the place where the labor, where the priest would wash. And then uh, this is all outer court. And then we have the, the uh, this is, we, you could say, the tabernacle proper right there. And this was divided into two locations. One was the holy place, which was about right in this section of that tent. And beyond that was a holy of holies, and there were four pieces of furniture all together. I won't go into all of them. The last one, of course, would be the Ark of the Covenant, which is very significant. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have in the following verses. So let's just at least read them, um, cover what I'm supposed to cover. Um, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section, second se- section called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, verse 4. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. Now, the reason why the golden uh, uh, altar of incense would be a, uh, an incense... Uh, um, Transported in there, a uh, uh, the incense inside of the uh, censer. What do you call that thing? The um, you, you altar boys. Don't you remember you used to shake those? Uh, um, huh? Oh no, no. I'm thinking in Ju- uh, huh? The incense was burning in. Uh, it, it, you could say it was a, a miniature altar because. It, it, it was a, a container like this. I don't know. Orthodox church, it has a chain and yeah. the priest goes, wow, yeah. the place is filled up with smoke. He's practically gagged, you know. <laughs> by, by all of it. It's supposed to affect your senses and the smell's supposed to give you a spiritual high. Uh, you know, that's what they'll tell you, really. And I, I could go into all of that, too, but I won't. Okay, so the golden, golden altar of incense was this 
incense that was brought in on the day of atonement and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail and I say the same thing to you of all these things I cannot speak in detail because I don't have enough time to go into to them in detail but I assume that you know them at least you see the picture of them but I want to draw your attention to the first verse that says now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness so look at if the first covenant is connected to the earthly place of worship if it's been replaced with a second covenant, how then can you expect there to be a future earthly place of worship again? So that eliminates the idea or possibility of a future temple being built. And this is big. I can't emphasize how big it is. If you turn on, I don't recommend it, but if you turn on Dayspring or TBN or these, with all of these big popular speakers, John Hagee's and all of them, we did a whole thing on mm-hmm. some of them. This is, big, this is big to them. Millions of millions of dollars are being sent to Israel. Lots of prayers, lots of hopes that this whole temple thing is going to be rebuilt again. You want to rebuild the temple? And even according to their own dispensational system, it's only going to stand for seven years. And the Antichrist is going to get into it in the middle of the seven years. And and the Christians should be supporting this? I don't think a lot of them understand what they are supporting and what they are trying to hope for expectations. We look for the second coming of Christ. We don't look for a rebuilt temple. We're looking for the coming of of Christ in Him alone. Mm So, the idea that a second temple will be built is such a, uh, a fallacy. And here are some of the reasons, just practical. If there was to be a temple that would be rebuilt, um, who, would be the, who would construct this? Who has the authorization? Now, I know we probably here don't know a lot about Judaism, current-day modern Judaism, but there are three major sects, conservative, reformed, and orthodox. We also have other groups, the Hasidic groups. There are groups within groups within groups within groups. There are multitudes and varieties of various Jews. If you went to Jerusalem and you go to the Western Wall on a Friday night, it's packed. But you will see a segment of Jews here. They're all dressed in black. They're probably, they're all uh, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Hasidics. But they all have their own sects within them. And they have their own individual practices. They follow certain rabbis versus what other Jews in following other rabbis would follow. Um, so let us not think that there is some sort of uniformity of when we say, oh, the Jews are back in the land and the Jews are going to build. Who are the Jews? Uh, we're talking about fragments of varieties of Jewish people, religious sects, not counting the seculars. There's far more secular Jews than our religious Jews. Ask somebody from New York and they'll tell you that. There's tons of them. And there are a lot of religious ones too. I'm not in, in New York too as well. But for the most part, the majority, there's about 14 million Jews in the world. The vast majority of them, probably 90% of them are secular or at least non-Orthodox uh, um, ultras. But why another temple is ludicrous for future rebuilding? Who are the Levites? Who's going to decide who they are? Because the Levites are the ones that carry out the practices of the temple, the priesthood. Who will be the high priest? You need to have a high priest functioning in the temple. 
Who's going to be the one? I think each sect may have their own idea who, who could possibly be their high priest. But is the other sects going to be willing to accept that? There will be a feud among them. And currently there, there is not an authorized sect. There's not a unanimity among the religious Jews. The city is only partially owned even right now by the Jews. The Muslims have probably the most important part of, of Jerusalem. That's the Holy Mount. Where underneath it is where possibly all the rubble of all these persons, pieces of furniture are buried beneath. And the Jews want to get underneath it archaeologically. They're starting to dig even. And they want to unearth possibly some of these artifacts that are there. The church now is the temple. We don't need to go back to some sort of a structure. like We look at it in admiration. And the Bible tells us that every whit of it utters His glory. Man, if we had time, uh, I'd love to have brought in a model. Brother Ralph Lassert has a model, a physical model of the temple with all the various pieces in it. And I've seen bigger ones. I've been down in Orlando. Not overly impressed, but they try to uh, duplicate this. Um, Gary, there's also one in um, Lancaster. You know where? Oh yeah, I've been to that one too. Yeah, Thank yeah. you for reminding where, where me. Alec and Tammy, you know where? where true, true. And, so um, and it's okay to use as a model and as as a teaching tool. This great teaching that we can draw out of the temple, and they're all so obvious to many of us. I won't even go into all these various pieces of furniture, but they all have symbolism, and they're referred to um, in the Book of Hebrews for the most part. And they're all looked at as shadows. And that's why typology is so, so important to understand, to understand the Bible. And Hebrews is the book that brings out how the types have come to fruition in the person and the work of Christ and the ongoing ministry of Jesus at the right hand of God and this temple and all of that. The author is saying... You're barking up the wrong tree. You know, you're going to the wrong place now. You've got to, that's why the book ends by saying, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp. Mm-hmm. That's the camp. Let's get out of the camp unto him, bearing his reproach. You're going to be, you're, you're going to be reproached for the name of Jesus. Because if you're a Jew and you leave Judaism and all of that temple stuff behind you and you go to Jesus... You're going to be mocked. You're going to be scorned. You're going to be laughed at. But let us go forth unto Him bearing His reproach. All right. Brother Eric, would you close us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank You for uh, these wonderful uh, truths that we've heard. Uh, And Lord, encourage in our hearts by uh, knowing the the old uh, things in the covenant that have passed away that You have... uh, Replaced and, and brought them to a, to a new fruition, and in um, Christ, and all these things mm. that were a shadow of, of the true substance in Christ are now fulfilled. And Lord, we rejoice uh, in that. We, we rejoice in knowing that Christ is our Sabbath. He's He's everything for us. He's um, the one that, uh, that that is is the true temple. He's the true tabernacle. We we thank you. For him, mm. we um, are grateful for uh, your word, uh, being able to uh, instruct us and lead us. And uh, we thank you for your spirit in us to uh, to also help us and guide us and comfort us. Lord, we uh, commit to you now the 
uh, time of uh, worship and preaching and fellowship mm. that we'll have together, Lord, we uh, commit it to you. Thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.